Hello, you are at the net. Welcome to another episode of At The Net Podcast brought to you by Dexmex Productions. Twisting and tweaking the dials are our producers, D-Mag and Dave the Brain. Join me in welcoming your hosts, Craig Bell and AJ Shabria, who are about to take us through five sets talking tennis, all that applies and maybe even life as it seems to them. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Bell and AJ. Hi, thanks to our Ethernet podcast girl for that fabulous introduction, and welcome fans of the great game. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 9 of At The Net Podcast with AJC and CB1, who are talking the great game of tennis as it seems to us. Plus, thanks also go out to our good amigos at Tex-Mex Production, Darian D. Mac McBrayer and Dave the Brain DeLeo from Brack of the House, who are on the soundboards moving the dials and buttons to make us sound like real people. We're real people, aren't we? Yes, sir, we are real, and welcome, everybody, to another episode of At The Net. Wait. Yeah. Yes, and, and lastly, be sure to check out our good work on SoundCloud, Fireside, Spotify, iTunes, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, all the important communication sites that you kids find popular. And if you're a female, sorry, guys, would like to read the opening for the At The Net podcast and be an At The Net girl, let us know, as we are always looking for new female voices to do the intro, even in a foreign language, AJC. We have had a couple of really cool-sounding different languages and accented English, too, and uh, we enjoy that stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Again, yeah. sorry guys, but uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you have some some friends or some people in the business or outside of the business, we want to hear from you. So thank you. Yeah. So with that, uh, we'd like to get started this evening. Here on a Sunday night, we were with uh, one of the true legends of the great game of tennis, AJC. That would be... We've got one heck of a guest tonight. That would be Tom Gullickson, Davis Cup captain in the 90s and just a... Um, uh, a remarkable figure in tennis uh, in terms of integrity, coaching, Davis Cup advocacy, Davis Cup captaincy, and uh, let's get started, shall we? Yeah, no, he's he's uh, Wisconsin's favorite son, right? That's right. Yeah, we go Packers. Uh, uh, go go Packers the and pack. What, what about uh, Northern Illinois, the Huskies? Are, are they one of your yeah, favorite, the, one of your the favorite Huskies. places? <laughs> yeah, we, we've we yeah, found out Tim, that uh, you did a little college tennis up there. Yeah, Timmy and I spent four great years in DeKalb. Yes, that you know it's it, it's known for three things. It uh, they invented barbed wire there, which which kind of helped settle the West. Yeah, that it did. They invented a, a hybrid of corn called DeKalb corn, That's and of it. course, Cindy Crawford. Oh, yeah, wow. he's from, he's oh, from okay. Illinois. <laughs> that's the third. That's the, yeah, I love it. That's, that's the great third great thing out. about DeKalb. Did you see Cindy Crawford ever in DeKalb? I never did. Oh, you never did? Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for, for joining us uh, this evening. We certainly appreciate. Uh, you know the time spent with Tom. Tom's been, you know, just great for the, you know, the game of tennis. Uh, just quick uh, uh, thought here: what, what, or who got you into the game of tennis? How'd you start? What, what, what was? Uh, that's not a, a, a hot spot for tennis. DeKalb, Illinois, or Chicago, or Illinois, or Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Yeah. right? Uh, what got you started? Yeah, yeah. Well, we grew up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Uh, and right across the street from our front door, about probably 35, 40 steps out our front door, was the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse. They had eight tennis courts and a practice wall. And during the summer, they had a recreation department 
you know, public tennis program there on those University of Wisconsin at lacrosse courts. And when uh, twin brother Tim and I were about five years old, we were bringing a lot of energy to, to the day. And my mother was probably pulling her hair out. And she looked across the street and she saw all these kids running around hitting tennis balls and playing tennis. And she saw this like 30 foot high fence around these eight courts. And she said, oh, that might be a good place to to uh, take Tim and Tom over and kind of run around the tennis courts and chase balls for the kids and kind of run off a little, a little of that energy that they're bringing. So, you know, when we were five, we kind of went across the street and um, started chasing some balls for the kids in the program. And then, of course, we picked up a racket and we started hitting tennis balls and, uh, you know, fell in love with tennis from the age of five and, uh, you know, we spent hours and hours and hours at those public courts playing with each other and older kids and adults and we'd pretty much play anybody. Anybody that so, showed up and would, had a racket in their hand and a couple of balls, you, you guys were game, right? Yeah, we were gamers. We were gamers. And you played each other a ton, one righty, one lefty. You're the lefty, correct? Correct. I'm the lefty. Are you, are you the older brother or the younger brother? That's right. A couple minutes? I was, yeah, I was five minutes older than Tim, but <laughs> as usual, he found some obscure Chinese philosopher that said that the, the twin that stayed in the womb longer was actually older. But <laughs> I, was, I was born five minutes uh, before Timmy, yeah. but uh, he had to get. You know, he started the tour one year before me, and uh, you know he went from a teaching pro in Dayton, Ohio, to top hundred in the world on the ATP tour in one year wow. in, in 1975. And I was teaching at the Racket Club in Crystal Lake, Illinois, after I graduated from NIU and coached the team for a year. And I go, what the hell? You know, he's he's top 100 in the world already. And, you know, I'm left-handed. I've got a better serve than him. And, you know, I'm better looking than he is. So <laughs> I, I decided to give it a try. So I quit my coaching job in May of 76 at the Racket Club in Crystal Lake, Illinois. And by May of 77, I was top 50 in the world. So I think. To this date, I think Timmy and I were the only two pros in the history of tennis to go from teaching pros to successful, you know, playing pros. Exact opposite of most uh, game plans there, right? Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, but that's not the normal business model yeah, yeah. that you wouldn't follow. Yeah, it's definitely teaching uh, 3.0 ladies tennis and then going out and playing the circuit against uh, Bjorn Borg and Ilya Nastasi, right? Exactly, yeah, that's a little bit different. And and you mentioned Borgen Asazi, and then a Grand Slam final against Mack and Fleming, another righty lefty team. Yeah, exactly. We uh, in '83 at Wimbledon, we uh, had a really good run. We we won the two lead-up tournaments before Wimbledon. We won Queens mm -hmm. uh, in London. Then we won uh, uh, the next tournament that following week. I think it was in Bristol okay. and. Uh, and then we got to the finals of Wimbledon and lost to McEnroe and Fleming in the finals. And 
that's actually one of my fondest memories of Tim, who was an amazing guy. And uh, we were in the uh, Royal Box, you know, getting our runner-up medals from the Duke and Duchess of Kent. And Timmy kind of smiled, that great smile that he had. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, we're not doing too bad for a couple of small-town boys from Onalaska, Wisconsin. Oh, you know? I love it. <laughs> yeah, not too bad. And, yeah, that was probably... Uh, Maybe the greatest memory I have of tennis. Absolutely. Yeah. Were you wondering, going, how did we get here? You know, we were like, we were in Onalaska like a couple of years ago, and now all of a sudden we're meeting uh, the Duke and Duchess of Kent. And well, it was kind of funny. You know, Timmy and I always played well on grass. You know, he made the quarters of Wimbledon in 79, and, and you know, he beat Macaro in the fourth round. And 6-4, uh, 6-2, six, 6-4 six, six, on court two, the graveyard court. But nobody knows that I sacrificed myself. I lost to John McEnroe in the third round that year. Was that? And I just want, I just wanted to make John a little overconfidence against the Gullickson boys. <laughs> you said so it Timmy, Timmy got immediate family re revenge in the next round. He beat Mac 4-2-4 four, four on court two Tremendous. in 79, and then he ended up losing to Roscoe Tanner in the quarterfinals. And Tanner went on to the final, losing that to Borg, right? Exactly, yeah. He lost to Borg like 6-4 in the fifth. Fifth, right. Yeah, that was one of the epic matches, too. Yeah. Going back to mm -hmm. both twins getting, to, getting that shot at McEnroe, were you the opponent when John had the chalk flew up, you cannot be serious rant? You cannot be serious for asking me that question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was unfortunately me. And if you go on YouTube and type in John McEnroe, you cannot be serious. You'll see about a 25 or 30 second uh, video clip of McEnroe going crazy on court one yeah. in 1981 against me first round on, on the old court one, which is no longer there. And I lost the first two sets, 7-5, seven, 7-6. Seven, I had five set points in the first two sets. So I, I could have been up two sets alone. And then it was like three all in the third. And he aced me down the tee on the deuce court. And you'll see this video clip of me stretching for a forehand return and whipping it. And, you know, chalk did fly up. Uh, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask. Did yeah, chalk, chalk did fly up. No question he aced me. But, you know, clearly I was going to let the officials make their call. I wasn't in any mood for giving giving away points. I wasn't looking for the sportsmanship award at that time, you know. You were fighting. You were in the thick of you this You were in match. the zone at that moment. Yeah, hey, you know. I was, I was giving him all he, he needed there, that's for sure. Were, were, were you just kind of soaking that in, kind of going, okay, I've got, I'm getting under his skin now and think I've got him at this point? Or what, did you realize that he, he likes to do that? Just Because you know, some people intrinsically have to get kind of stir themselves up. So, yeah, so John seems like the kind of guy that he plays better the, the more agitated he gets. Yeah, yeah, 100% right. I mean, I mean, that was his true gift. I mean, he would get absolutely irritated and actually play better after that. Most players would play worse, but he perfected the art of going crazy and going nuts at the umpire linesman or something. And then actually, you know, elevating his game. You know, most people play a lot worse, but 
I guess because of the fact that he did it so much, he was used to used to managing it. But uh, you know, they, a lot of people said, "Well, you know, that's just John. You know, he was very passionate." But I, I tend to think he was a little more strategic. I think he smart, smart. he did it at times in the match, which kind of benefited him a well, little you, more. You were obviously getting close. You were close to him at that point, you know, as far as. <laughs> In, in the match, and so maybe he felt like that he needed something to externally motivate himself, I guess, and that was the, about yeah. as good an opportunity as he could to, to really start getting the crowd worked up, get him worked up. Did it bother you, or did you just kind of turn around and kind of walk the other way and thinking, oh, that guy's, in, you know. I'll yeah, I kind of just turned around, and, you know, I mean, you know, the hard, hard part about playing him was uh, – and to a lesser extent, Connors, you know, they were both such great players that you had to 100% be on your A game to stay close to them and, and, and compete with them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, typically the in-between point time is a really good time for you to recover and kind of, you know, regroup for the next point. But then there was always some kind of craziness that you would have to deal with between points. So what it did is it kind of robbed you of your recovery time because there's always something going on. There was like too much noise in the background. Whereas playing someone like Borg, who was a great player, but you know, he never said a word. So he just played. So you would play and and then you'd have your you know time in between points to kind of recover and kind of regroup and then refocus for the next point. He didn't have that with McEnroe and to a lesser extent Connors because half the time there's all this chaos going on between points. So that, that you know, definitely would take its toll on you over a period of time. Were they the toughest competitors you ever played against, or was, or, or be somebody like Borg who was who didn't give you anything? He didn't look look at you, didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Is it easier to play somebody like him, or is it harder to play somebody like him, or is it? No, I like playing Borg because he, it was all about the tennis, and because he didn't really take the ball early. And he didn't really kind of take your time away, and he wasn't really that anxious to come to the net. You know, you always had time to play. So even though he would beat you, you always felt like you were able to play against him. Whereas McEnroe, you know, was always on top of the net. He would take your second serve and hit it and come in, and he would serve and volley. And, you know, he was always kind of on you and taking your time away. And you never really felt comfortable playing with him because he was taking time away. And as you guys know, being good players and great coaches, you know, time in tennis is precious. The more time you have, the more more you can play. And Connors, you know, was very similar. He would take your time away, but more from the baseline. So you could get in a little better rhythm because you could hit a few balls and you could rally a little bit against Connors. But he was always on the baseline or even inside the baseline, you know, taking the ball early, taking the ball on the rise and taking your time away. And he would make very strategic net approaches as well. So he could he could actually finish at the net. So he, he, even though he didn't really serve and volley much, he, but he, he was quite capable of, like, finishing at the net. So, Tom, I yeah, know, it was um, totally different 
kind of matchups with those three three players. Bringing uh, bringing those concepts and those some subtle and some not so subtle differences, bringing those into today's game. I know you do some consulting at one of the absolute top junior programs in the in the Midwest, and uh, some of these guys you've worked with who play the Nationals at Kalamazoo. I know earlier you were telling me about two brothers, the Han brothers. Uh, how do some of these subtleties, how do some of these concepts, um, how do they relate to today's tennis? And you can answer that in terms of pro, college, or elite-level junior tennis. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's it's been an interesting laboratory for me being at Midtown Athletic Club in Chicago. Uh, I'm a consultant there, and I work in their high-performance junior program uh, on a part-time basis. And uh, we also hosted the, uh, the National Collegiate Men's Indoor Championships last February, where we had the top 16 men's team in, in the country collegiate teams in the country so I saw the best college teams in the country and we saw the boys 14 and under national indoors here that we host in Chicago and then you know I did go up to Kalamazoo for five days to watch the boys 16s and 18s at Kalamazoo and you know what I'm seeing in junior tennis uh, on the on the men's on the boys side specifically, I see a lot of very good ball strikers. It, so is, it, but, is the tennis as good as it was back when when you were growing up? Let's say, are you uh, well? Just I think divert. you know the the coaching is better, the training is better, the technology is better. So the short answer should be that the tennis is better and you know these kids all hit the ball really really well but I would say not that many kids in, in Kalamazoo when I watch the 16s and 18s you know not that many kids really understand how to play and you know when you're playing tennis you're playing tennis, you're not playing ball striking. And I think there's too much of an obsession, really, with how you hit the ball as opposed to where you hit it or what your tactics are, what your strategies are. And, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of playing the game of tennis. And it's very interesting when... Uh, the six years I had the privilege of being the Davis Cup captain for the U.S. from 94 through 99, I had, you know, three number ones in Agassi, Sampras, and Courier, a number two in Michael Chang, a number four in Todd Martin, a number eight in Malavia, Washington, and then a plethora of number one doubles players like Rick Leach and Jonathan Stark and Richie Rennenberg, Alex O'Brien. You know, so I had a lot of great players in Davis Cup. And Thursday night, before the Davis Cup tie would start on Friday, I would sit down with the two singles players that night and go over kind of strategy and game plan. And, you know, it's very interesting talking to our guys because I scouted their opponents and and, uh, knew, and they knew who they were playing and they probably played them a lot. And it was very interesting. 
interesting. You know, I, would, I would say, well, how are you, how are you guys going to play this match tomorrow? And invariably they would say, you know, I'm just going to go out and play my game, and I'm going to impose my game and my competitive will against my opponent. And then, you know, if I need to make some adjustments, uh, Captain Gully, you can kind of help me kind of with some game day kind of adjustments to kind of tactics or, or strategies or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and to me, that was very interesting because that's a champion's mentality. I think understanding what your A game is and knowing that when you go out on the competitive uh, court, you own that strategy. You're not renting it or leasing it. You own it. So if you're uh, kind of a big serve and a big forehand guy or serve and volley guy like Sampras, you know, you don't do that well. You do it outstanding. So you can obviously impose your game on your opponent. And that's a champion's mentality. You know, it's it's great to be aware of your opponent's tendencies and strengths and weaknesses, but it's even more important to know your own game. Did you, did you ever consult with the private coaches? Uh, obviously, you probably didn't coach everybody privately, but did you? I did, yeah, absolutely. I didn't, you know, when I was captain, the six years I was captain, I didn't have a coach, you know. Right after uh, my captaincy, uh, they kind of uh, added a position to Davis Cup. Yeah, two guys. Patrick McEnroe was a captain for like 10 years, he did it. You know, Jay Berger was his coach. Right. So he, he would have some help. And when I was captain, the six years I did it, I was a captain, I was a coach, I was the water boy. I, you know, <laughs> when Sampras, you know, collapsed with full body cramps in, oh. in Moscow after he won that uh, yeah. match 6 4 in the fifth against Chesnikov, I was one of the six people who carried him off the court like a Roman gladiator yeah, to the locker room. Yeah. 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 So I was, a, I was kind of a jack of all trades, you know? So, yeah, that's. Uh... Um, it, it, that that match. Just thinking of that match right there. Did uh, uh, the '95 did, final? Yeah, the '95. Was that one of the greatest moments that you've ever been a part of in, as a Davis Cup captain? Would you say? Yeah, that was probably that weekend in Moscow. Might have been. You know, was definitely the highlight of my coaching career. Uh, along with helping Agassi win the gold medal uh, in Atlanta in the 96 Olympics, which was a lot of fun. But, yeah, winning that Davis Cup with those group of guys, those dedicated guys who were willing to go survive a a winter week in, in Russia, in Moscow. We played at the Olympic Stadium. On a on a red clay court, and uh, yeah, there are about twenty thousand Russians there, and and uh, yeah, that was that was quite a win. That was quite a win for the boys. That's the size of Arthur Ashe Stadium, am I correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's huge. It's bigger, but they kind of sectioned off a few sections. But it, but there was probably twenty thousand people there. Was there a little Every day. vodka being drank, maybe? <laughs> a little Russian vodka, maybe? 
Yeah, I think they, they probably had some vodka going there. Yeah. Gave, gave it out for us so they could get the crowd going? <laughs> yeah, 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 it was uh, it was pretty loud. And they all had they had these, like, sticks that, that they would beat. You know, <laughs> very loud. To make it even noisier, yeah. right? Yeah, no, that was that was. I remember watching that match back here in the states, thinking, "Gosh, what that guy laid it out on the line." I mean, oh. I don't think he could have played. He was going adrenaline, basically, what halfway through the fifth set, maybe, or even the fifth set itself. Did you, yeah, did you I mean, Andre Andre Chesikov. Yeah, I mean, he he played a little like Wallander. You know, he he never missed a ball. He was lightning fast, and he was a great competitor. Uh, remarkable passing shot artist too, right? Chesikov. Yeah, and, and great backhand, like all the Russians, yeah. two-handed backhand. And you know, Sanford beat him six-four in the fifth in four and a half hours, and on match point, he ended up coming to the net like three different times to try to finish the match. And the third time he came in, he hit like a forehand approach, and he's coming in, and then he, you know, Chesney finally couldn't run down that one ball, and and when he realized, you know, the ball had bounced twice, and he actually hit a winner, collapse. He lifted his arms up in the air, and then he collapsed in full body cramps. Did, and me and the doctor and the trainer and the stringer and the chef and the sports psychologist, wow. we all ran out in the court and kind of lifted him off the court, off the ground, and, and carried him into the locker room. It was it was quite an amazing moment. Gully, was the handshake with Chesie was that a bit later, or did you guys <laughs> have to carry him to the handshake? Yeah, I think I think that might have been the next day. Yeah, I think we we took him straight into the locker room and. Uh, our team doctor uh, immediately started a, a bag of IV fluid. I think he took about two and a half bags of IV fluid. Wow. And, hey, and this wasn't just a five-set match. The day before, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Pete play the dubs with Todd? No, the day after. Oh, the day after. Yeah, the day yes. after. So that was the Friday. Yeah, that was a Friday. Yeah, that was, Friday, a, that was a fun story. Uh, so Tell us, yeah. You know, uh, the next match, you know, was Chesnikov or uh, Kapelnikov playing Courier. You know, and Courier had already won the French Open twice, so clearly he was our number one clay court player, right. even though he was a number two ranked American behind Sampras. So our number two, Courier, played the Russian number one. Uh, Kafelnikov on the first day and and I told Jim before the match, I said, Listen, this Kafelnikov guy, he's got the absolute best two hand backhand down the line I've ever seen. So I know your signature shot is that forehand inside out, but you can't cheat as much against him as you do against most guys because he'll if he sees you going too far over on that ad side to hit a forehand he'll rip that two-hander down the line and sure enough that's what happened he he uh, he was really exposing jim's forehand out on the run with the down the line backhand and we ended up losing that match which left me with a very interesting decision because my doubles team was Todd Martin and Richie Rennenberg. Hmm. And they'd been losing every day in practice to our practice partner, Vince.
afraid of you. Oh, boy. I ain't afraid. Oh, I ain't afraid. I ain't afraid, <laughs> afraid of you. And, uh, we all answered that. And we were Craig Boydum, who was Jim Courier's traveling coach yeah. at the time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, so Craig was a, 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 was a practice hitter. No, he was okay. he was Jim's traveling Jim's coach. coach. Sure, yeah. But, and Jose Higueras was his kind of master coach out yeah. in Palm Springs. Boy, but, Tim and, and Spadia were, were taking down Rindenberg and Martin. Oh, boy. Every day. Every day. Every day in practice. It was fun going back to the locker room after or the hotel. You're sitting there scratching your head. I got my number one player yeah. who's getting two half yeah. bags of IV, and I got a guy that just and lost. So, and so, yeah, so, you know, I, you know I, I talked to myself, and I said, you know, how many times are you in a position to win the Davis Cup? And the answer is not enough. Yeah. So, you know, Sanford, you know, I talked to, to Richie, who is the ultimate team guy. And I said, Richie, I'm thinking about possibly bringing Pete in and subbing him in for you to play doubles with Todd tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And Richie's going, golly, I'm ready to play. I'm ready to be the best cheerleader. You know, Richie had no ego. He was the, he was the ultimate team guy. So he's, he, he was a stand-up guy in that moment. Yeah, top, you know, top 30 singles player every year. You know, really solid singles player. and Top five, top ten doubles player. You know, won multiple slams and doubles with, with Jimmy Grab. Right, you know? Jim Grab is and, uh so Richie, you know, was great, and so Sampras is is getting a, a massage about eight o'clock that night in the in the team room, team massage room. So he's laying on his stomach getting a massage. So I walk in, and I said, "Hey, Pistol, how about playing a little doubles with your buddy Todd Martin tomorrow?" And he kind of looked up at me, and he goes, "Doubles? Jeez, golly! I haven't played, I haven't played doubles in over a year. Over a year. And besides that, I feel terrible. I just got off my desk. And uh, I looked at Pete, and I said, "Is that a yes or a me? <laughs> yeah. <that's> a- <laughs> and he laughed. He laughed, and uh, he goes, "Golly, why don't we do this?" And he said, "Let's do this. Why don't you get Richie and..." And Todd ready to play, and they had a very specific about a forty-five minute kind of doubles warm-up they like to do. Why don't you get them ready to play, and then I'll come over you know, in the morning, and maybe you and I can hit some balls, and we can make a game day decision. I said, sounds good. So I take Richie and Todd over. They go through their forty-five minute warm-up and get a good kind of doubles workout in. And uh, Pete kind of strolls over and. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm hitting with Pete, and, you know, he's like a one-stepper in the warm-up. If you don't hit this, the ball within one step of him, he'll just let it go. Mm. So I'm kind of grinding to try to hit the ball right to him, you know, so he doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, you know, you know, gets a hit. So, so is he feeling pretty good? We, I mean, is he feeling better, you know, well, next we day, hit, obviously? And then we, you know, I, I, I served some to, he was going to play the deuce court, you know, with Todd being on the ad. And he was a little worried about his inside-out backhand return, so he served some balls to his backhand. And, and uh, you know, we sit down afterward, and I said, well, Pete, how do you feel? And he goes, golly, I don't feel that great, but you're the captain. It's your call. And I hesitated for a nanosecond, and I said, you're in. Let's go. And it turned out to be a really difficult but great decision. 
Yeah, and it was a difficult decision, but, you know, I, I just thought to put the best player in the world on a doubles court is never a bad thing. No, he's you pretty know? good. Yeah, he, he can... Especially, I, I knew for a fact that Kafelnikov idolized Sampras. Mm. Interesting. And, yeah. and he was also like 1 in 10 against Sampras. He, yeah. Sampras owned Kafelnikov. I remember the first time they played, it was the Australian Open a few years before that, and Kafelnikov was not a known quantity, but it went five and Pete beat him. Um, I forget what year, but I remember thinking, what a lethal ground stroker, and this guy isn't afraid of Pete Sampras' serve. Like, he could return with the backhand anywhere he wanted. No, he returned unreal. Okay. And, uh, was he playing with uh, Chesnikov? Were they just no? He two? played doubles with uh, Andre Olhofsky, Olhofsky uh, okay. who was also like a top thirty singles player. But he and Kafelnikov actually won Grand Slams together, including I think they won the French that year. So that was a formidable team that you're up against on clay in yeah. Russia. Yeah, with a guy yeah, number one in the world who's not feeling good. Yeah, and so I, I got the you know feeling. we we go down a break early in the first set. You know, Pete was having a little trouble with that inside-out return, and he and Todd weren't exactly gelling. And but then we have a break point to get back on serve, and Ohovsky has a high forehand volley that he could have just stumped right through the middle. And instead, he gets kind of cute and tries to hit like an angle volley winner. And Sampras runs it down and hits a screaming forehand through the middle to break. And then Kapelnikov started screaming at him in Russian and, <laughs> and to get back on serve at 4-3. So we're down 3-4 serving, you know, instead of 5-2. And, you know, I said to the boys on the changeover, I said, hey, you, hey Pete, you just created World War Three yeah. among the Russian team with that break of serve. So I said, if you guys can tough them out in the first set here, we can freaking steamroll these guys, you know. And uh, sure enough, you know, we win the first set 7-5, and then the second set 6-1, and then we're up 5-2 with Todd Martin serving in the third, and, and we lost his serve, and then Sampras gets up at 5-4 and goes ace-ace, volley ace, winner, unreturnable, you know. My man. And so we win that doubles match, uh, you know, in straight sets. And Sampras comes out the next day, and yeah, you know, and he's he's playing unreal. I mean, unreal. And he's so focused because he realizes that he doesn't have that much energy left. So he comes out on fire. See the and Agassi, a little known fact, was Agassi was there supporting the team, even though he couldn't play. He had played you know, a couple of ties before that to get us to the final, but he was injured and he couldn't play in the final. But he came all the way from Vegas to, to, to Moscow to support the team. So Andre's there, and he's, he's like, gully, gully. Listen to the ball. Listen to when Pete hits a ball and listen to when Cafell hits a ball. And it was just a, the sound was unreal. You know, the, the, Sampras is hitting it so clean and getting so much racket speed. And it was just a different sound. It was a beautiful sound. And we win 6-4 or 6-1, six, or 6-2, six, 6-4. Six, and then Pete was getting tired of third and went to a tie break. And then we're up five, 
265 serving, and and Pete hits an ace down the tee about 130 for us to win the cup. Wow. And you know, so he wins like wow. six two, six four, seven six, and clearly one of the best red clay court matches that he ever played. So he single handedly won the Davis Cup for you, Bate. He single handedly won the Davis Cup, and then we we you know we come home after that. And it's early December, and like nobody cared. You know, I mean, literally nobody cared. You got college football, you got pro football, you got pro basketball, you got all this stuff going on, and literally nobody cared that we won the Davis Cup. So I can tell you, needless to say, I, I wore out like three pair of knee pads trying to beg these guys to play Davis Cup the next year. You know, what is that? I mean, I, I was in grad school at the time. I was a part-time teaching pro. Um, I. I'm not afraid to admit I cried a little bit when we won that cup. Maybe there are more of us who weren't as, you know, vocal with the adulation, or maybe we should have had a. Was there any presidential reception yeah. or anything? You invited to the White House? No, hands? never got invited to the White House. That's crazy. The one thing that the USTA did, which was absolutely amazing, they said to me after the match, they go. Uh, Hey, Gully, what can we do for the boys? I mean, so special <laughs> that they gave such an amazing effort this year to win the Cup. Right. And I said, well, you know, all these guys are multimillionaires, so giving them a little extra money really doesn't do anything for them. I said, they all love to play golf. Why don't you get us on Augusta? Oh, the, the Masters. Masters. There we go. Yeah, oh. and sure enough. Yeah. They, they they came good on their promise, and they got us on Augusta, and me and five of the players went up to Augusta, and we uh, got there the night before, took them out to a nice steak dinner, and then the next day we got there, and we played the par three course kind of to warm up, and then uh, went to the main course and played 18, came in, had a nice lunch, settled up our bets. Uh, went in, in and bought out the pro shop and, oh, and went home. So it was a, that's it was a memorable, memorable never... day with the Davis Cup team uh, being being uh, invited to play Augusta National. Who, who, was, who was the best player? Who won the bet? I just I want to. I'm yeah, interested to who was the best golfer out of that. Well, I, I hate to Besides brag, yourself. but I shot the, was... I shot the lowest <laughs> score. Okay. Besides, okay. So, of the players, who was the you know the guys who were on the you know, the five that went with you? Uh, well, you shot all of these guys. You know, at, at the time, Sampras was like a twelve. Oh, okay. And, but Todd Martin was like a four, and Courier was like a four. And, and, really? Yeah. A lot of these guys were very. You know, Agassi didn't come. He, he was, couldn't couldn't make it. But, Is he a golfer? Is he? Does he? Uh, yeah, golf? he's very good. Very good. He plays left-handed in golf, like his two-hand backhand. Yeah. He takes about halfway back and then hits it about 320. Interesting. Come on. Really? He doesn't yeah. even have a full backswing, huh? He's got about a half a backswing, like his two-handed backhand. Just he takes like about halfway Playing back. on the rise. <laughs> Cock, cocks his wrist up and hits it about 320. You can't even see the club head. It's going so fast. Tremendous. Interesting, yeah, because I knew he, he was a really good, I heard, in, in the batting cage. He could knock out... You know, a ninety mile an hour ball coming from uh, you know, or, you know, in a batting cage. And I was like, wow, that guy's got interesting eye hand coordination. Yeah. So he must have interesting eye hand coordination to be able to hit a golf ball like that too. Well, his son is one of the best baseball 
Wow. At the moment. Yeah. Yes, he's playing ball. Right Jayden, he's a pitcher, right, Jaden? No, I don't think he's a pitcher. Oh, he's I think he's a hitter. He's a hitter in a field of gotcha. Interesting. So, yeah. what, so what do you, do you go, going back to Midtown? I know you said you're yeah. working with the kids there. What, what do you tell the kids? You know, uh, what are your keys to making it? You know, enjoying the hard work. You know, efforts. What, what do you, what do you tell those guys? I mean, you've been at the highest level. Now you're, you're with kids that uh, are ca- trying to get to at least a level huh? of. Right. So well, what, what I think if we kids? can, you know, I think in any good junior program, I would say that, you know. Uh, Helping the kids get D1 scholarships or D2 or D3. Any any time they can kind of use tennis as a vehicle to to get a higher education in college and maybe get some kind of scholarship, whether it be full or partial or whatever, and they can. And I think uh, I think that's a win for the program. I think that's a hundred percent win for the program. Excellent. Um, and we at Midtown we. You know, our philosophy is very simple. This is also happens to be my personal coaching philosophy is you develop all court players that are competent, comfortable and confident in all three parts of the court. The back court, the mid court and the front court. And I gotta say in Kalamazoo I, I thought the mid court was a bit of a mystery to most of the boys. Meaning they can volley and put stuff away, but trend and they can, of course, run. Well, yeah, the transition game. Transition you know, game. the ability to kind of read the play and read that their opponent's off balance and sneak in and, and take a floating ball out of the air and, and hit a swing volley or sticking a higher volley. Uh, taking the ball on the rise, you know, finding the top of the bounce. You know, I mean, a lot of the players can hit a really hard, heavy ball, but they kind of let the ball come to them and then kind of wind up and take a bigger swing. Instead of, you know, you watch a Roger Federer, who might have the best mid-court game ever. I mean, he's so good at reading the bounce, cutting off the angles, and taking the ball on the rise. Mm -hmm. And I think... I think the mid-court game is a, is a bit of a, a mystery to most of the players and kind of learning to take the ball on the rise and finding the top of the bounce and driving through the ball with a little, as my twin late twin brother Tim would say, a little pop-top, you know, where you're really driving the ball but it's got a little top spin on it that creates just a, enough shape for you to control the ball and... Uh, and find a good deep shot, and then come in and, and put away the volley. Is is the loss of the midcourt game maybe on the coaches that uh, let's say are a little younger than us? Uh, that uh, I was born in 1960, and I learned the chip and charge game. That was my game. It seems like there's a generation maybe that's lost that doesn't know how to to work with the guys at this level other than you. I mean, obviously, you, you did a really good job of playing doubles and, and chipping and charging and singles, that kind of stuff. You, you, yeah. were, an, you were an attacker all, all the time or looking for that opportunity. Is there a lost generation maybe between us and, and the players today that maybe they, they're not as – their coaches aren't as familiar? Or is it just that they think that uh, you can't come to the net because they see people passing them? You know, is, are all the – Yeah, players, I, think, I think that's – I think you hit it – hit it on the nail there. Uh, I think a 
lot of people say, oh, you can't come to the net. The guys have too good of passing shots. And I go, well, how do you know? You never come to the net. So, <laughs> okay, if if they have such great passing shots, you know, if they're in a if they're in one corner, and you you take the ball two steps on the rise, you basically take two steps out of their ability to get to the passing shot. You know, there's a, a, a correlation that's pretty equal. The number of steps you take the ball on the rise, when somebody's in a corner, you take the, that same number of steps away from their recovery time. And people don't understand that you can, taking time away from somebody is as equivalent as hitting a big shot. Whereas if uh, I wait, you know, and I take the ball two, two or three steps later and take a huge swing at it and hit it harder, is that really better than, you know, taking the ball on the rise and using my opponent's speed on my shot and taking two steps away from the recovery? You know, that's a bit of a lost art. We don't see too many people doing that. I got to say, at Kalamazoo, I didn't see too many players that were really proficient at taking the ball on the rise. It's such a joy when you do see a young guy who does take it early and goes to the net. And I think you used three C's, confidence, competence, and comfort. And I'm always smiling when I see a kid with all three of those, and he seems right. happy going in. It's 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 really neat. I, I like you. I'm always very passionate about that all court game. So it's neat yeah. to see someone and, flying and, the flag. You know, and and you know, tennis, you know, is a game, you know, that's played. First of all, with the eyes and mind, then mm -hmm. secondly, with the feet, and thirdly, with the hands. Now, with your eyes, you're reading, reading the ball. With your mind, you're making a decision on how you're going to play that next shot, like how you're going to receive the ball, where you're going to send it, and what shape you want the ball to get there. And then with your feet, you maximize your positioning in relation to the ball. And then with your hands, you deliver the strike. So that same cycle is repeated, repeated over and over again. Eyes and mind, feet, hands. And, you know, the reason why Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal are 10 levels above everybody else is they can repeat that cycle ball after ball after ball. And like Federer so beautifully said in an interview last year, you know, they were asking Federer, you know, why aren't some of these next-gen guys like Zverev and some of these guys, why aren't they taking over? Why are you guys hanging around? You know, you're 37 now, and Nadal and Djokovic are both in their early 30s. Why are you guys so much better? And and the very simple answer from Federer is these guys don't know how to play in the midcourt. They have no midcourt game and frontcourt game. And he's 100% right. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit painful to watch a remarkably skilled six-foot-six guy like Zverev do everything on a tennis court well, except when he gets to the tee or inside the boxes. And then he looks kind of average, like they're college kids with better volleys than that guy. Yeah, he's a deer in headlights up there, and it's even more amazing that his brother is a great volleyer. Misha is unbelievable. In yes. fact, he we know him here in Dallas. Right. He is a, right. a lefty, crafty 
Uh, right. Very compact strokes and happier in the mid-court and front court than than really he is at the baseline even. Can, can, can you imagine, exactly. Can you imagine, you, you retired at a ripe old age of 36, but there's guys that are actually, you know, like Federer playing really well, in, well into his, you know, 37, 38th year. 30, yeah, yeah. Right. Is, is it the training that's better? Is it the doctoring that's better? Is it the, you know... Well, I think I think as you get older, you do get smarter. Uh, you know, Jimmy Connors had a great quote about about getting older. He said, you know, the one thing about getting older is that you know by the time you gain all this experience, you're too damn old to do anything about it. But, <laughs> you know, that's not true in, in today's game. You know, I mean, you see. You know, Feliciano Lopez is 37, and the Madrid, you know, Master Series Tournament Director, he wins Queens this year, and he's back in the top 50 in the world, and Federer's still competing for Grand Slams at 38 years old, and, and, you know, they're, A, they're taking way better care of themselves, and B, the scheduling is much better. You know, they, they, you know, Roger, you know, for the last, two or three years has taken the clay court season completely off because he's got his French Open trophy. He doesn't need another one. And he knows at this point his best chance of winning slams is either Wimbledon or, or one of the hard courts. It's certainly not grinding on the clay, although his record over the last 12 years would suggest that he's the second best clay court player in the world next to Nadal, who's an absolute machine on the clay. Remarkable. Maybe yeah. better than Borg. It's pretty. It's really crazy, yeah. Is that crazy. Because of the money also, too. Can you imagine the money? I, I know that your career prize money, you know, they would make some of those guys, they, they make that in a, in a tournament. You know? You're kind of like, wow. Yeah, that might be their guarantee to show up for a tournament, you know? <laughs> I mean, the money's, I wouldn't say ridiculous money, but just would you have ever fathomed that? Uh, well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I watched the FedEx Cup today, and Rory McIlroy won $15 million today for winning the FedEx Cup. Not a bad I think Nicholas Nicholas won 18 majors and he finished second 19 times. I think his career prize money was a little over a million dollars or a couple million dollars. I mean, these guys. <laughs> and same in tennis. I mean, you know, in 1982, I had a pretty good run. I got to the quarters of the singles at the U.S. Open. And uh, Timmy and I got to the semis of the doubles. That's correct, yeah. This, yeah. this is in 82, mm-hmm. and I got a check for $16,000. <laughs> if I would have done that last year, I was looking at the prize money last year. If I would have done that last year, it would have been like 450 or something. 400 And wow. first-round loss is close yeah. to triple what you made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first yeah. round loss uh, at the U- U.S. Open this year is fifty eight grand. Yeah. Fifty eight grand, right? Yeah. Fifty eight grand to lose first round. I remember doing some stat work uh, a while back. I think the, the let's see what was it something like it was like not early nineteen eighties. That's when it you know the you go back the first round loser made more than the winner of the U.S. Open. That was you know something kind of crazy <laughs> yeah, about what you're just saying. X number of years. Right, apart, yeah, right. so the guy you know, won, uh, let's say, $60,000 in 1983, 84, no. winning the thing, and now all of a sudden, now the guy who gets knocked out first round is making the same amount, you know, basically, you know, 30 years later, you know, 35 years Oh, later. yeah, I mean, the money and the qualifying is a joke. 
you know, yeah. people saying, geez, you know, how do these people in the qualifying get through? Well, geez, I mean, to show up in the qualifying is pretty good money these days. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, so is the money like that, is, is, does it help the American kids? Does it hurt the American kids? How come we don't have any American kids around that really, you know, aren't like the, the Sampras, Agassi, Curry, or Chang? Where, where are we and why? Are, are the Europeans that much well, better we, than us? Well, we they? did, you know, you know, players tend to come in waves and mm-hmm. certainly – you know, we were in the same situation when Connors and McEnroe were getting a little older, a little long in the tooth, and, and uh, you know, they were saying, what's wrong with American tennis, and it's really on the decline, and who's next, and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, who comes along? Sampras, Agassi, Chang, Todd Martin. Jim Kerr, uh, Dave Wheaton. Courier, David Wheaton. You know, Jonathan Stark, Jared Palmer, Alex O'Brien, Tarango, you know, a bunch of guys, you know, it, it were actually a great wave, you know, really great wave of player. Mm. You know, between Courier, Sampras, Agassi, and Chang, there's 27 Grand Slams right there. Mm. And I'm not saying there's going to be 27 Grand Slams out of Tiafo, Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, Tommy Paul, you know, I would, you know, but they did, you know, when you look back three, four years ago, you know, we dominated the junior Grand Slams, you know, Tommy Paul won the French, Riley won junior Wimbledon, Taylor Fritz won the junior U.S. Open, and now fast forward four years later, you know, Taylor is going to be seated at the U.S. Open. He's ranked like 27. Riley's like 42. TFO's high 30s or right around 40. You know, so they're, they're making good inroads, but clearly not up in the top of the game. You know, Riley's beaten Isner three times this year. You know, he beat Warinka at Wimbledon. Right. So okay. he's showing signs of having big wins and big moments. So we'll see how he does against Pognini uh, tomorrow First uh, at, the, US the, Open, at yeah. the U.S. Open. Yeah, he plays Pognini. Yeah, had a, he's had a pretty good spring summer. He's had, he's played really well. He, didn't yeah. he win Monte Carlo, I believe, didn't he? Gotcha. I think he did, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, he's very good on clay, and he's one of the few guys who can actually beat Nadal on clay. He, he gave him a, a good 45 minutes at the Canadian Open, and then Nadal did some problem-solving and won the next two sets fairly quickly. But I was impressed with, of course, the way Fanini takes the ball early, and like you said earlier about Kofelnikov, uh, backhand up the line and just really not afraid because he has those elements you were talking about, the mind and the eyes, the feet, and, of course, the hands. Uh, taking an objective look at the four or five young Americans you mentioned, how are they in those departments, the mind and the eyes, the feet, the hands? Well, I think, you know, we'll just start with, we'll just go from the higher ranked to the lower ranked. I think Taylor Fritz, to me, I've really been impressed with Taylor. You know, he's he's working with David Nankin out there at the USTA Training Center in Carson. He's added... Uh, Paul Anacone to his team. Coney and uh, Nankin. That's a good team, huh? Yeah. And, you know, he's, you know, of, of all 
those players that we mentioned, I would say physically he was probably the, the least gifted. You know, he didn't move particularly well. He didn't have great intangibles. He didn't, he couldn't really volley at all. And he, his slice wasn't great. He didn't defend the court very well. Oh, and he wasn't moving terrifically well, but he was an incredible ball striker. He had a great first serve. Second serve needs a little more beef to it, probably. And he has improved it. But I've got to say, I've been completely impressed with Taylor's, you know, A, he loves to play. He's really, he loves to compete. Very competitive kid. He's moving much better. He's really improved athleticism off the charts. You know, he's really worked hard physically to get, you know, fitter, stronger, faster, more athletic. He's defending the court much better. He still needs work on his volley and, you know, he needs to have some confidence kind of moving forward to finish at the net because A, he serves so big and B, he hits the ball so clean. His back two-hand backhand's really solid. His forehand's huge. When he can set up for his forehand, he can really rip the forehand. So mm-hmm. off the ground, he hits a really clean ball. And he puts himself where he gains advantage very quickly in the points because he returns pretty well also. So he just needs to get a little bit better at maybe stepping up and and, and, and feeling confident enough to like go into the net and finishing a few more points off at the net. Uh, TFO has obviously played some great matches, but he's been very inconsistent. You know, he's lost first round like 10 times this year. Mm-hmm. You know, after getting the quarters of the Australian Open. So, you know, he needs to find a, a level of professionalism and commitment that would week in and week out, out, he's winning matches and he's competing well. I mean, he's kind of a, the thing I like about Francis is he's a big stage player. You know, look at uh, how he competed with Federer. He lost right. five sets at the U.S. Open, you know. He took them all the way, he you know, in deep, in, deep into the night at he, the Open. He took that uh, fourth set to Roger, didn't he? That was a great yeah. match. Yeah, and, you know, so Francis is you know, he's a prime-time player. He likes the big stage, but, you know, how's he how's he playing, you know, first round on, on court five yeah. in Cincinnati when it's 95 degrees and 90% humidity, you know? He is I mean, a, uh, he's an amazing story, and I'm such a fan, and I love how he yeah. does. The forehand's a little funky, right? Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, he, you know, he's got a little stylistic little twitch in that forehand that I know they've some of the coaches have tried to kind of correct that kind of elbow up racket face facing the back fence type of forehand which technically isn't highly recommended especially at the speed that the ball's going on the men's tour but he when he has time it's lethal and he's got a very fast hand so he can make up for being late uh you know better than just about anyone i've ever seen and uh yeah and, and i think with Francis, it's just a matter of better, more discipline and better decision making. He just makes some, you know, really interesting decisions on the court that that put him in a bad spot on the court when he could 
kind of win the point much more easily. So, you know, just a little more maturity, a little better decision-making, a little more discipline. I think Francis can certainly be a top 10, top 20 player. I hope so. And, I, and I'm a little biased because I, I, I coach Riley Opelka from the age of 8 to 13. Yeah. I taught Riley how to play. I taught Riley how to play. So, and he's, He's like a seven-footer now, so... Uh, was he a big kid uh, back then? Pardon? Was he a big kid back then? Was, could you tell he was going to be that tall? Well, you know, his father, George, is six six, played a little college hoops, and his mother's like six-foot or six-one. Well, so he was always going to be a big kid. Right. But Riley was always really athletic. I mean, you know, he was never like a really awkward kid even though he was growing, and he always was a very good mover. You know, when he was down at Boca with Francis and Tommy and all these guys, you know, getting trained at the training center in Boca, uh, when they would do kind of sprints and any kind of movement drills, Riley was always first. He was always incredibly fast. Hmm. That's incredible. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to hear that. That's, that kid's going to Yeah, so, but I think Riley has got... You know, he's 42 in the world, but he's got tremendous upside. I mean, he's got a massive serve, and he's got a great backhand, and his forehand, you know, is getting better. It's a work in progress. It needs to keep improving. He's got some net skills. He, yeah, he knows how to he knows how to volley. He knows how to finish at the net. Yeah. <laughs> he needs you know, a little work on the return and, and the transition, but... Uh, yeah, there's no question that Riley, you know, Riley's one of the guys in the draw that I guarantee you the other 127 players at the U.S. Open, they don't want it. you know, when they see, oh, I play Riley Opelka, they, they wouldn't be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, you know, you got no rhythm, you know, the guy serves huge. He can pretty much take the racket out of your hand. And in the really, the good thing for Riley is the match is pretty much always in his hand, you know. I was in the uh, broadcast booth of a challenger, and it was, you know, 14, 15 feet up um, in the corner on the ad court, behind the ad court, obviously. And I seriously felt like I could reach out and catch his aces uh, because his ball was kicking up, up, up to basically my knee level. It was unbelievable, and I'm 14 feet up, you know. So if you're not six foot something, that ball's above your eye level. It's pretty amazing. Pretty great serve. You return it above your head, yeah. basically. No, no it wouldn't be a fun serve to try to return. That is rough on you the You wouldn't want to chip and charge on it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Maybe that's all. Yeah, but, yeah, you could chip and charge if you don't mind eating a fuzz sandwich once in a while. When he goes body, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Who's your choice to win the U.S. Open? Yeah. Give, give us a quick let's synopsis. Let's switch over to the draws. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, why don't we start with women's tennis and yeah. then let's go to the men. Yeah, who's on Let's the do it. Yeah, who do you think? You got Serena? On the women's side? Yeah. I, I think it's wide open. That's a great answer. That's. I think you're nailing it. Very politically I think, it, I think it's wide open. You know, selfishly, I'd love to see Madison Keys win. What a serve. She's a great girl. She just won Cincinnati. Yep. You know, she lost to Halep like five times in a row because Halep is, Crap. you know, she's a great mover and a great ball striker on both sides and a good competitor. And just for Madison to to beat Halep, 
was a massive mental and physical victory for, for Madison. And, you know, she's got a lot of confidence go, going into the Open. Uh, Sloan has had a very kind of disappointing year and disappointing summer. She hadn't really done much. Seems like she's kind of, kind of... No, I wouldn't look for her to do too much, although she does get inspired by the majors. But Especially this I think one, you, yeah. you need to put the work in to get ready for the majors. And I just haven't seen that in her. I see. Um, Serena just doesn't play enough tennis these days, although she does have an interesting first-round matchup with her friend Maria. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> nice yeah, that's rivalry right. there, yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah, uh, Valley, it's hard to call it a rivalry when you've beaten someone like 17 times <laughs> yeah. in a row. <laughs> if you don't win, it isn't a rivalry. It was a rivalry yeah, back in you now. Know, Maria's had a lot of tough luck with injuries and, yeah. you know, whatever. But, yeah, uh, whatever, yeah, the intangibles. Yeah, Osaka, you know, made a very interesting call. She wins two majors, and then she fires her coach, and <laughs> she hasn't been the same since. So Very natural progression. Yeah, yeah, hey, I can yeah, use that I got this. <laughs> yeah, she's clearly uh, not, she's underperforming big time. Um, You know, Halep's played very consistent. You know, Halep, I think, will probably be there at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like a great counterpuncher. Um, she doesn't have a tremendous amount of offense, but, you know, she beats girls by just being solid and, and using her legs really well and competing well. Uh, someone like Kvitova can be dangerous, a lefty, you know, great lefty serve, very good clean ball striker, hits the ball flat, which works pretty well at the U.S. Open because the courts are usually a little quicker than, say, the Australian. Uh, she might be a, a dark horse pick well, if she's healthy. That's a good group. Uh, that's a good group. Uh, any, any dark horses? Uh, I know Sabalenka. Um, Maria Sakari. I'm a big fan of Daria Kazatkina. She plays with so much feel, but she's had a pretty bad year. What do you think? Any chances there from from some outsiders? Um, yeah, that's a that's a really great question. Um, you know, uh, I don't really know the girls that well, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I always I, tell Adrian anybody I can't pronounce their name. I'm, I'm not going for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't pronounce One their name. I'm not sisters, going for them. You know? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's great. There's you're automatically eliminated off the Craig Bell list. If I can't pronounce your That's name, sorry about that. Funny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Kelly, let's switch over to the yeah. guys. Yeah, shall we? the men's draw. Yeah, what you got on the guys? You think? The big three. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's hard to bet against Djokovic. He's in that yeah. top, he's in that top half with Roger and Nishikori. Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously Djokovic and Federer have amazing matches because yeah. you know, they're. You know, I mean, Djokovic. You know, when you kind of boil it down, he's a he's really a great counter puncher. Mm. You know, he's really good at moving, absorbing blows, and redirecting the ball. Djokovic can play offense when he wants to. But a lot of times he just kind of uses his movement and his ball striking and his his uh, kind of fitness to kind of wear people down, you know? Does Roger have the yips against Joker? 
end, you know, and, and, and people always look at, at just kind of the result. But they don't look at the the other body, you know, of work, the five hours of work, you know, like when he had match point at the open. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah no. And Joker slapped that forehand oh, return. That forehand. I mean, he just slapped it. He could have could have hit that into the back fence on a fly, and it happened to go in the corner for a winner, and ended up winning the winning the winning the open. Change the um, yeah. and, and I'm a Roger lover. Everybody who knows me knows I call him the king all the time. And I, I love Roger, and it just gets me so frustrated. And not that I'm a, I don't like dislike Novak. Yeah. I just love Roger, and I th and it's just like, oh, come on, Rog, come on. You know, you get too yeah. Much well, I think them. everybody loves Roger, and yeah. I think I think Novak. You know, he, he's painfully aware of the fact that the only people cheering for him are the guys in his box that he's probably paying to cheer for him. I think, I think there are 15,000 people in the stands, 14,994 were against yeah. against Novak and six people. Were, were, were. Yeah, and, and he somehow I think he mentioned something at Wimbledon. He kind of kind of uses that you know, he kind of has this mental trick of you know, every time they yell Roger, he thinks they're yelling Novak. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that line. I uh, I heard I that, that was great. A couple yeah. of interviews with him, and it's it, as much as I'm more of a Roger uh, fan than a Novak fan. I completely admire that about him, and I no, I, I, I think yeah. I think Novak's amazing. I mean, he's like the Elastic Man. He's, like he's so flexible. Yeah. I mean, he can go into the corners, you know, better than anyone, really. I mean, nobody's ever been better out of the corners than him. Hey, Gully, why is his overhead a little bit substandard? You know, to me, he 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 doesn't really move. He doesn't make the adjustment steps he needs to make. And he also doesn't really hit it aggressively. I remember when when, when late twin brother Timmy yeah. was coaching Sampras, Sampras had a very simple philosophy on the overhead. As soon as the ball goes in the air, points over. It's mine. I love it. You know, you know I, don't, I don't see that same mindset when he's hitting an overhead. Half the time it looks like he's just going to slice it and keep it in play, mm. you know? A defensive move. I, I don't see that, that kind of really athletic kind of kind of animal mindset. Like, as soon as the ball's in the air, boom, I'm going to snap this off and points over, you know? Great answer. Thank you. Thanks. So, so what do you think, uh, Rafa? What do you think about Rafa? Yeah, talk, let's talk about talk the, Roger, and we talk uh, Joker. What yeah. about Rafa? Does Rafa? The guys in the, in the bottom half, you've got Team and Sissipas and uh, a few other key names in the top of the bottom half, and, of course, Rafa looming large in the bottom of the bottom half. Well, Team has never been a good hardcore player because he doesn't return serve very well. It's kind of what you were saying about time earlier also. He he wants a bit more time and he stands back. Yeah, he needs time. He takes a huge cut at the ball. He has never learned the art, art of shortening his swing and taking the ball more on the top of the bounce. He, he's always been one of these guys who returns from the back fence. He lets the ball fall and he just loads up and takes a huge cut. At it. I think he's trying to call and the lines, isn't he? Isn't he trying to call yeah. the lines <laughs> with the lines people? <laughs> he's yeah, I mean, he's, I think he's got a personal relationship with all the linesmen uh, at the U.S. Open. But, but yeah, I, I don't really like that on hard courts, giving
giving away that much ground. I mean, Nadal does do it as well, but you know, with two hands, he can take that return a little earlier on the on the backhand side. And Nadal does an amazing job of returning from deep and hitting the high heavy and then getting right up on the baseline and then looking to play from a much tighter court position. Team returns from deep and he stays deep. Mm. So you can get him with angles, you can get him with little short slices. There's a lot of ways you can expose team because his court position, you know, he doesn't naturally kind of get up on that baseline and look to take ground. And that's that's one of the reasons why Roth has really improved on hard courts is his ability to take ground and get inside the court to play. Excellent. Any uh, any dark horses in your mind, like uh, Kyrgios or a Stan Wawrinka or, or anybody else? Cici Boss. Yeah. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, uh, Pass is. I like his game. He hasn't had a great summer. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess Medvedev would have to be one of my dark horse picks. I mean, fifth in the world. Yeah. yeah. Of the, of the net of the next gen players, he's he's certainly really stepping up, and he's much more mature, and he's got a lot of game, and you know he's got a lot of pop on the serve, and and he's got a great backhand and a pretty big forehand, and moves pretty well for his size. Yeah. He, he's really kind of rangy. He can cover a lot of court. And, you know, beating Djokovic was a very good win in Cincy. And uh, that shows he's kind of, you know, prime time. And Zarev has just been so far below average this whole year. I don't see him making any impression at the Open at all. Yeah, he he looks like he lost his puppy. You know, he just kind of, he just kind of, I think people... Yeah, he's lost his mojo. It's kind of like the erotic commercial from years ago. Yeah, the mojo, yeah. He totally lost his mojo, that guy. Yeah, Yeah. it just didn't seem like this year people figured him out, you know, and uh, he doesn't know what to do. It just seems to be not there. I don't know. They're just, the mojo, whatever it is, yeah, it just seems to be... uh, be gone. Well, we um, we want to move into uh, a fun segment. Um, we're big James Bond fans, and in Goldfinger, Arik Goldfinger once asked Sean Connery, "So, what's your game, Mister Bond?" And uh, often Craig asks me that, uh, but today it's going to be, "So, what's your game, Mister Gullickson?" I hear that, of course, you're still a great tennis player and a remarkable coach, but I hear you're still in your 60s, a very good golfer. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, I play a lot of golf now, and it's really nice. The ball's just sitting still. <laughs> you know, it's not coming at you 120 miles an hour. Uh, With 4,000 RPMs. In instead of running for the ball, you can actually get in your cart and go find it, which is really fun. Hey, you, you won uh, a tournament today. Tell us. And your wife won a tournament today. Yeah, we uh, were members at the Glen Club in Glenview, Illinois. Uh-huh. It's a really great Fazio course. Fazio, is this a Chicago it, suburb? Yeah, it, it's a northern suburb of, of Chicago, Glenview, Illinois. And, mm-hmm. Don't Fazio uh, the, Glen, the Glen, Glen Club, it's a K 
Kemper Sports manages the course, and they do a great job. And uh, my wife won the ladies' club championship today, and I I eked out a win in the senior club championship. Congrats so, to both gullies! That's awesome. Well done. Yeah. So we got the we got the family win today in the club club tournament in. The beauty of it is we each get our own parking spot with our name attached to it for a whole year. Kelly, so. you, don't even, you don't even need it. You just need one if it's two of you, right? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the members afterward, you know, for drinks and everything in the ceremony, they're like, hey, there's a new rule, only one parking spot per <laughs> family, you know? And we're like, okay, well, you know, like we can do an auction for the other spot. It's not a problem. Right. Bring your checkbook. Uh, speaking of other games, like, of course, tennis and golf, but uh, what about some of these emerging racket sports? I know squash and racquetball have been around for a while. Uh, what about paddle and uh, platform tennis and pickleball, pickleball. which is yeah, trendy? I yeah, I know. Are you a pickleball fan? Yeah, what are you well, saying? you know, I have pay, played a little paddle tennis, uh, but, you know, after 40 years uh, living in Florida before I moved up to Chicago yeah. two years ago, and I must say I've survived two Chicago winters now, <laughs> and Good it's not my idea of fun standing <laughs> outside in the middle of winter when it's 10 below zero playing paddle tennis. Oh. And having 40 ball rallies because you can't hit a winner in that sport, Harley. Tough game to hit a winner on. Yeah, you can play it off the wire and all. Yeah, give me give me a nice indoor tennis court and three other good players and playing little doubles and having some fun. You know, well, that, well that's definitely that's what we're doing when you're coming. That's much more suited tennis. to me these days than sitting outside freezing to death playing paddle. Pickleball? What about pickleball? Any pickleball? I have played pickleball. I enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. Uh, I think any any tennis player with any kind of skill at all can be a great pickleball player, and you know you can still you know play a little team sport, play some pickleball doubles, and have fun, and not have to move around too much. And uh, half court, yeah. as long as you don't you know encroach upon the kitchen, you can stay outside the kitchen and knife a few volleys. It's a lot of fun. I know uh, <laughs> the times I've played pickle. I've gotten in trouble with that kitchen business too. It takes. Yeah, a, no, you just gotta stay outside that. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for them to invent a court where you get electrocuted if you go inside <laughs> the kitchen. That's the only way to cure us. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's. Uh, shall we move on to the next segment? Our last segment there. We yeah. usually call it "Get Off My Lawn," and uh, usually I get. Craig, to, Craig, know, say it. You say it, baby. Get off my lawn. It's our shtick is that we're middle-aged men. Or maybe a little more than middle-aged men, and we uh, there are some things that we want to rant about. Sometimes it's comedic, sometimes it's broadcasting related, and uh, we wanted you to talk as a Davis Cup player, as a Davis Cup hero and captain. Tell us uh, if there's anything you want to get off your chest in terms of get, get, getting something off your lawn, like maybe Davis Cup format or Labor Cup or ATP Cup, and some of these changes. I gotta say, I'm, I'm not a fan of the. Uh, as a captain for six years, a winning captain yeah. of Davis Cup. You know, the beauty of the Davis Cup was the home and away ties. You know, I love being the home host, and the away 
uh, ties were special. It was just me and the team, and mm. it was a little bit of a bunker mentality. It was us against the other team and the whole country. So you kind of got in your own little USA bunker, and you all worked together and, and try to try to beat the home team, which was really special. Those away from home wins, and obviously the classic three out of five set matches, and there's a lot of epic five set wins in, in Davis Cup that we all remember. Uh, and Yannick Noah, the captain of the French Davis Cup team, I thought said it very well. He said, you know, the ITF has kind of literally ripped the, the heart and the soul out of the Davis Cup by, you know, kind of shortening the format, you know, 10 days, you know, two out of three set matches, three points, you know, two singles, one doubles. Um yeah, I'm not a fan. You know, I gotta say, I, I'm really not a fan. I I can appreciate that all sports kind of need to evolve and they they need to kind of look toward the future. And it's a very competitive market, this sports slash entertainment market, and, yeah. and they're all looking for you know ways of packaging. You know, their their sport for television purposes and whatever, but. Uh, I guess I'm a little old school, and, and the, the old format worked pretty well. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate for me that, that they switched to this new format. But, you know, I guess I've got to approach it with an open mind and, and see how it works. And uh, if the USA wins the Davis Cup in the shortened format, I'll be really excited. <laughs> that was a very positive ending to a very... Well researched, well thought, and heartfelt. Get off my lawn. So thank you. Yes. You're very reasonable. You're welcome. Very reasonable and Midwestern there, Gully. Thank you. Exactly. I got to keep everybody happy. It's a Midwestern trait. <laughs> Love that diplomacy. Thank yes. you, Gully. Yes, yeah, that's... you got it. Yeah. Did you like like the Labor Cup? Are you a fan of the Labor Cup and you know the agency? Yeah, I mean it's an exhibition. Let's yeah. face it. You know it's. It's nothing more than an exhibition, but it's entertaining. And, uh, you know, until we can feel the more competitive team, I mean, the Europeans are going to just take us to the woodshed. So we need to we need to somehow figure out a way to be more competitive. Did you go watch it in Chicago? I just remember it was in I Chicago. Did. I did. I did. Uh, yeah. I actually... You know, Rod Laver's a friend of mine, and he was one of my mentors when I first came on the tour. Incredible. And, uh, and, you know, I actually had to call it, call Rod Laver, and I said, Hey, Rod, do you have any tickets for the Laver Cup? And he just happened to have a couple tickets for Sean and I, you know. Excellent. Not, not a bad deal. It was nice. Yeah. Nice to get some tickets from uh, the the rocket himself for the Labor Cup rocket. in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, Gully, if you were the commissioner of tennis, and I see you as that kind of a leader, um, especially a Midwestern background and political, the way you answer questions. Yes. <laughs> if you were the commissioner of tennis, um, uh, what would you do? What would you change? What would you uh, improve? Would you add anything? Would you you know? Would you? What would you do? Yeah. Is there anything? One thing that might stand out. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The crystal um, ball is yours, and yeah. you get to say, okay, I've got the magic wand. I've got the dust. I can do anything I want to. Wow. That's, that's really a 
That's oh, a lot of power. All right. We got him. How do we do it, CB? I don't know. That's a lot of power. That's kind of humbling. That's a very humbling question. Yeah, because I mean, um, there's a lot of great things about tennis, and like you said, that the. the uh, uh, you know, I, I would say, I would say, I think it's on a good track. I think the combined events, people love the combined events. You know, the, the Master yeah. Series. I, I think, I think, you know, for most of those kind of Master Series one thousands, I know there's a few that are separate, <laughs> but I think the combined events sell very well, and I'm just kind of selfishly thinking of the U.S. events. I mean, Indian Wells is amazing. Yeah. Hey, what uh, what uh, Larry Ellison has done with his team of Tommy Haas and Ray Moore and those guys out in Indian Wells, you know, it's an amazing event. Uh, Miami with IMG uh, hiring James Blake and moving to the new venue so they could get out of Key Biscayne and really expand it. That was an amazing change this year and I think there's a lot more buzz around the, the combined events so um, and I would just like to see just a touch more of an off season for the players I think they play a little too much that's, and that's uh, a good I know some of the older players like the Federers have been much more selective in what tournaments they play and uh, I, I think you know, injuries have been such a big part of the game, and a lot of the players, you know, the bodies are breaking down, and I think there just needs to be a little more of a real off season. I think, you know, when you think of December, you know, kind of halfway through uh, November and maybe December off, but is it really off, you know? Because in December you have to start training to go down. Most players leave for the Australian Open. Most players from the States leave right at, right around Christmas Day or just after Christmas to go down to Australia. So I think, you know, it's very important to, to have an off-season uh, in tennis. And then, uh, you know, I would like to see just selfishly, I would like to see the young players, both the WTA and the ATP, I'd like to see them do a better job, uh, kind of, you know, to help the younger players understand the history of the sport better and the sacrifices the older players made, you know, to kind of grow the popularity of the sport. And, and uh, you know, I think, I mean, I remember... And they interviewed Safin one time down in Australia, and yeah, he said something about Rod Laver. Oh, yeah, he's a guy with a name on the stadium, right? You know, I mean, come on. Good and the guy was one of the greatest players in the history of tennis. I, I think, you know, when you kind of compare tennis and golf, and they're two easy sports to compare, I think, you know, when you look at the golfers, they really kind of respect the history the rich history of the sport, you know, they really, you know, Ben Hogan's, you know, you know, five, five secrets in his book about the basic yeah. fundamentals. And you see guys like Byron Nelson, when they would play the tournament in Dallas there, all the players would stop by and shake his hand on the 18th hole. And, you know, there just seems to be in golf just a little more respect from the, the golfers as to the history and the tradition of the sport. And I would strongly recommend that to the ATP 
yeah. and the WTA. Captain Gully, we got to get that on the curriculum at the ATP University. I know they, they teach some good fundamentals in money management and media relations, but that history segment, you could feel it that some guys get that. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about Djokovic and, and Roger Federer, probably head of the class in that. And you can feel right. when guys don't get that. And you right, Safin? Yeah, you mentioned <laughs> Safin, yeah. Hey, his, uh, hey, his guy's name on the stadium. Yeah. Well, what do you do to get the name on the stadium? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Hey, he bought his name. <laughs> yeah, you could feel, you know, where Pat Rafter totally gets that stuff. And maybe a Nick or Atomic, maybe they don't get that stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. But, uh, well, well, Captain Gully, you've been an outstanding guest, and what a great chat. Uh, um, CB, thank you. This is uh, wonderful. Uh, it's been great to be able to spend an hour and a half with yeah. uh, legendary Tom Gullickson. Man, what a, what, I mean, I, I could sit here for another hour and a half, but I know that yeah. we, we got to stop at some point. we got to let him and Sean have it. Well, well, have, well. Definitely going to. And listen, if it's a nice day, we'll hit the Hartrew courts. If it's not, we got indoors like you like, and we'll uh, we'll uh, hit indoors. I've got a golf course too that's pretty yeah. pretty good around here too. Yeah, so we'll yeah. Let's best. let's sneak in a little round of golf down there. Too. <laughs> do both, my man. Let's do both. And maybe get some barbecue on on top of that. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> you not. You got it. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Golly, you're the coolest. Have a great night with yeah. your wonderful family, and uh, congrats on and your congrats golf. Congrats on golf and tennis, baby. Well yeah. done. Well done. Yeah. Thanks, brother. All right. See you. Talk See you soon. soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, everybody, that was a great uh, hour and a half spent with uh, Tom Gullickson. Hopefully you've enjoyed uh, as much time as we have Season 1, Episode 9. Nine, nine in the can right now, we're AJC. Still, we're still new at this, but I feel so good. I Boy, really was... can't stop smiling. That yeah. guy is infectious, knowledgeable, sensible and he's exactly as I remembered him as a captain at uh, Davis Cup ties it's exactly how I remembered him as a doubles player in the 70s and 80s as a singles player too just a remarkable from a guy from just kind of humble beginnings he wasn't not from a uh, tennis family prodigy you yeah. know you know parents just you know uh, sounds I like his mom it. just hey go across the street get out of my hair public so- courts at a at a you know not a huge college and a built-in uh, practice partner and his twin brother. So yeah. God rest his soul. That's Timmy Gullickson, and God bless Tom Gullickson. That was an awesome, fun yeah. interview. Thank yeah. you. I hope you all enjoyed that. And We're going to do a little sign-off here. So thanks for listening to Season 1, Episode 9 of At The Net Podcast. Be sure to tell a friend or friends, as we like your peeps, and hopefully they'll like us. And that's the tennis news as it seems to us. Good evening from Dallas, Texas. And producers, cue that uh, guitar riff and drum and bass by Trey Rock. And thank you, everybody. Have a great night. See you later.